with Revelation chapter 13, and we're in the second half of that section. Your quizzes are on the podium back there that you can uh, you can feel free to pass or fail. Right? <laughs> one of these days I'm just going to do it to you because I joke about it so often that you're going to get a test, and then one day it's going to sit there. Yeah, 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 I know. That'll be the last Sunday morning anybody's here. <laughs> I've actually visited places where they do that. <laughs> they actually give you tests at the end. Like, I'm not sure what good that does for you. <laughs> Revelation 13, verses 11 to the end of that chapter. We're going to be looking at this second beast. Uh, we're going to read that text uh, from verse 11 to verse 18. Uh, and then we'll talk about what's leading up to this description of this uh, second beast. And... Uh, really pay careful attention to the descriptions that are given regarding this beast, because this one is a little bit harder. But if we pay careful attention, I think, to the various descriptions about what this beast does, what its purpose is, who authorizes it, I think we can probably put our finger on uh, what this uh, beast is, is, is looking like. All right. So uh, Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and all who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it was permitted to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name and, the, and or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. This has certainly been the text of all kinds of fun uh, that has been done through the ages. So we'll see if we can apply some rational logic and reason to the imagery that's being given here in, in this, this section. Um, in chapter 12, we saw a dragon come about. Dragon represented devil. the devil, Satan. He's described as the deceiver of the earth. He's pictured in chapter 12. And he has been able to, uh, has been unable to conquer the child, unable to conquer the woman. End of chapter 12 ends with all that he has left to do is to go make war on the saints, the offspring uh, of the woman, the people of God, the servants of God. That's how chapter 12 ends. He then is raising up this, this first beast out of the sea. And what is the pretty much universal interpretation of that first beast? Roman Empire is uh, pretty solid that everybody sees that beast as that. Yep. Good question. Hold that. <laughs> Good question. Hold that. 
Because I think that plays into a little bit of looking at this the second beast somewhat. All right, so this beast is described in the first 10 verses as going about uh, making war on, on the people of God. It has great authority, comes back to life. Chapter 13, verse 7, permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them, given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose names are not written in the foundation of the world of the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. So uh, we looked at all that last week. This now turns and you see this second beast arise. Tell me about this description in verse 11 and in, in verse 12 to get a sense of at least we don't have to worry about identifying yet. I just tell me what we're seeing it doing. And, and that way, I think we can start kind of putting our puzzle pieces on the table and trying to lock them in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it has a look like a lamb, but when it talks, sounds like the dragon. So there's, First of all, this second beast has a direct connection to the dragon. It seems it wants to pretend to be of God. It looks like a lamb, but it really isn't from the lamb. It speaks like, like, a, like a dragon. What about verse 12? What are we seeing this thing do? Okay. So notice everything about this beast has its direct connection to the dragon and the first beast. That's what those first two sentences lay out. It seems to want to be a deceiver. It looks like a lamb, but when it talks, it's definitely not from the lamb. It is definitely from Satan, from the dragon. And its purpose, you'll notice in verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. So it sounds like it's working for the first beast, working for the Roman Empire. When you look at verse 12, in particular, what is its primary goal? We're going to get everybody in the world to worship the beast. So it derives its authority from the first beast. And its goal is to get everybody to worship the first beast. And much of what we read about in this paragraph centers around that singular purpose. Trying to cause the whole world to worship the beast. Notice verse 13. What is it doing? Doing great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in front of the people. Why is it, why is it doing that? What's, it, what's its goal? Deceive. deceive. So we're deceiving the world here in an effort to promote this worship of the first beast. So whatever it's doing is causing people to want to worship the first beast because it's doing amazing signs and, and wonders, Jim. Potentially, potentially. Hold on to that. That's, it, it, it is come from a different location. So there is something a little different about it. It may be a, a good way to put it. Um, look at verse 15. And what are we seeing it do? Okay. So empowers the first beast. And then look at the second part of verse 15. 
And those who don't worship the image of this beast are going to be killed. So you're really getting a sense of it's like the the undergirdings of this first beast, right? It's empowering it. It's causing the world to worship it. It will kill those who don't worship the the image of this first beast. It's very much the the activity uh, behind the scenes or underneath this, this first beast. Look at verses 16 and 17. What else is, is being described to us about this, this second beast? What is it doing? Everybody a mark. Okay, everybody's receiving a mark. Why? What's its... Okay, so now you can't buy or sell. So notice a mark of identification uh, is, is being used here. And I would submit to you that it's in contrast to the prior marking of Revelation 7. Uh, you can get some pretty crazy books out there about like, um, what what's going to happen in toward the end times is like the mark of the beast is going to be everybody having a chip implanted on the back of their neck and that's going to be the mark of the beast and if you don't have the chip in your neck you're going to not be able to buy and sell and all that okay keep to the first century <laughs> remember in chapter 7 those who belong to the lamb were sealed they were marked So here's a contrast. Those who are not belonging to the lamb, they're marked or sealed with this mark of of the beast. So it's it's nothing to get nervous about. It's just simply a contrast of, of who you belong to. And so you have that picture in verse 16 that it's going to try to make everyone, and notice it means everyone, small, great, rich and poor, free or slave, to receive this mark with the purpose that you will be unable to to buy or sell anymore. All right. So up to this point, do you have a sense of what this thing could be that it's talking about? You know, here here it is. It's it's authorized by the dragon, authorized by the first beast. Its whole purpose is to deceive the world, cause the world to worship the first beast. It will persecute and kill those who don't worship the beast. And it will keep people from being able to buy and sell in the marketplace unless they have this identification of belonging to to the beast. Think emperor, okay? I think that's a very solid possibility, Debbie. Influencers, okay, and I think that's a very solid answer as as well about what must be going on behind the scenes in the first century, Charlotte. Uh, I'm sure this isn't it, but when you read history, that Roman army was so very powerful, and the generals yeah. in the Roman army, when they would win a battle, they would get these marvelous processions, sure. and they were considered gods. Yeah. And I think that that's a solid picture as well, a part of what the, the culture of the Roman Empire looked like. Mike? I uh, just throw a bit in general. Okay. Take a look at the example of Hitler and the German people. Okay. You know, they're German people. You don't necessarily have to believe in everything to go along because okay. if you don't go along, you're going to get... Okay, <laughs> so good. All of a sudden, you become supporters of whatever it is that you're doing. Good. And the army cannot exist without the funding of the people. Good. That the the maybe the picture of Germany is useful. That it's not just merely the top down, but there are 
entities, peoples, and authorities below who are generating all of this to keep it going so that those activities still happen. I think that's a very useful way to look at it. Mike. I mean, not Mike, uh, Frank. I just did Mike. Denver Clutely, which is one of the more demented ones who came back to Tiberius, he actually replaced the statue's heads with his own. That's right. Yeah, it doesn't take long to start. You read like Suetonius about the various emperors, very insightful about... Uh, very few were not completely crazy about one of the things that they were demanding and wanting, uh, Dennis. And uh, going back to the two horns like a lamb, you know, the Roman, <clears throat> Roman Empire was supposed to tax Roman Empire. Everything's yeah. nice and peaceful sure. because of their rule. But in order to obtain Yeah, and that's why I, I think everybody is getting the right sense of it. I don't know that the intent of the imagery is to say, here is this one particular thing, because the descriptions are very broad. Uh, it is closely connected to this first beast. It's given authority from the first beast and from the dragon, and goes around compelling everybody to worship the Roman Empire and be a, be a part of it. So I think that you could be pretty wide in this and talking about, does this seem to include the emperors? I think so. Does it include these imperial places of worship and altars? I think so. Does it including the pagan worship that was required of people in the Roman Empire? I think so, because this is what you read about historically going on in the Roman Empire, that it wasn't just simply... Emperor on top going, hey, everybody, I'm in charge and you need to like me, thus says I. You had it happening down low within the trenches of these groups and peoples promoting that and causing that. Think about like Paul at Ephesus. Is the problem that the emperor showed up in Ephesus and said, you know, you need to worship me and, and worship this goddess Diana? No, there's a whole temple and there's a whole altar system and there's these religious guilds and they're all fighting Paul and saying, you're wiping out our, our way of life and taking our income and we're going to worship these pagan gods. And if you don't let us do that and keep that going, we're driving you out of here and want to kill you for that. Well, was that top down? No, that wasn't top down. It wasn't some decree somewhere that said that. That was the people themselves and what they were insisting upon. So I think you're seeing a very close connection that the first beast is very much the Roman Empire with all of its power and politics and military might and strength and what it's able to do. And that the second beast is kind of describing what was happening underneath that gave it all of its power and influence and ability within the Roman Empire. So um, Archaeology has found all kinds of emperor worship altars in cities all over that em empire. Interestingly, even in all of the seven churches of Asia, we have found those things archaeologically. I gave you uh, your quiz, quote unquote, th this paper as you walked in. And I want to read it to you. That's why I didn't put it on the screen because this is way too long to have to you know, flash 25 slides for, for this. But I think if we can get a better sense of what the first and second century Roman world looked like, it really does help get a sense of what was, was, was going on. So you listen to it on your paper there on page one, the longer side of the, of the paper, of the writing there. You'll notice that this was correspondence that was in 112 AD that we, that we found. And here's what it says. This is Pliny the Younger writing to Emperor Trajan. 
he doesn't know what to do about Christians. So he's writing a letter to the emperor and he's trying to get information. What do we do about all these Christians? That's the, essentially the question. So here's he starts telling him what he's been doing. So here's what Trajan, oh, sorry, what Pliny writes to Trajan. He says, it is my practice, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians. So let's stop right there and realize in 112 AD, there's already trials going against Christians. And he's saying, I haven't been a participant in this. This is why he's asking questions, because he's about to be and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to carry that out. So there's already trials going on. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate and to what extent. And I have, not, I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or difference between the very young or the more mature, whether, to, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance, or if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one, whether the name itself, even with offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name are to be punished. So a Christian is on trial, and he says... If they repent, means recant, being a Christian, what should we do about that? It, do we punish them anyway, or do we let them go? Do we do that with the older? Do we do it with the younger? Do we do it with people, notice the end of that first paragraph, who have the name with no offenses? They haven't done anything wrong, but they say they're a Christian. Do we do something to them? So this is what he's trying to ascertain about how do we run these trials? How do we deal with, 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 with if they just say that they're a Christian but haven't done anything wrong? What do they do? We do if they say they're a Christian and we tell them to recant and they do, then what do we do with them? That's kind of what he's, he's driving at. Second paragraph. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. This is what he's done before. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians, those who confessed. I interrogated a second time and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness or inflexible obstinacy, surely deserved to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order to them to be transferred to Rome. All right, tell me what Pliny's been doing. You get three chances to recant being a Christian. And if you don't, what happens? You're killed. What's the only saving grace? If you're a Roman citizen, what happens? Okay, you can't do anything. Remember, Roman citizenship kept you from capital punishment. Remember, Paul used that. So... He says, I'll send, I send them to you if they're Roman citizens. Otherwise, I give them three shots and then they're done. That's the end of them. Third paragraph. Soon accusations spread, as usually happens, because of the proceedings going on and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with statues of the gods, and moreover cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. 
These, I thought, should be discharged. Others named by the informer declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, but had ceased to be. Some three years before, others many years, some as much as 25 years. They all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. All right, tell me what Pliny's been doing. He's testing them. All right. And notice he says there on that third sentence, in words dictated by me. So I make them say particular things. And if they're willing to say what I tell them to say, then okay. But if they're not willing to say what I tell them to say, and notice what he's telling them to do there, offer prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the gods. So Pliny rolls out in all of the Roman deities. There's an emperor statue there. Say these words, offer your offering before the emperor, and that'll be your recanting against Christ and you are part of the empire and safe. That's what he's saying he does. Fourth paragraph. They asserted, however... That the sum and the substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft or adultery, nor not to falsify their trust, nor to return to or refuse to return, nor to refuse to return a trust when it is called upon them to do. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Even this they affirmed that they had ceased to do after my edict, by which in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses, but I discover nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. All right. So what does he say is the sum and substance of their error that they have determined of these Christians? They meet on a fixed day, you know, Sunday, right? They meet on the first day of the week. And what does it say that they do? They sing. They take the Lord's Supper. And they try not to do wrong. They bind themselves not to do a crime, but to not do crimes, to to do what is right. This is the, the thing that he says, this is what we have figured out that they ultimately do. And when their service is over, what do they go do? Then they go meet together and eat somewhere, is what it says. And so... You notice that the end of, toward the end of that paragraph, it says, we forbid them getting together. So after their assemblies, they stopped going and eating meals together. So that's what you see him pointing out. They ceased to do that after my edict, even though what they're eating is innocent food. So, you know, they're just having lunch is all they're doing. But uh, that gets set aside because uh, the empire is telling them, uh, not to do this. I want you to notice the wording at the end of that paragraph. Notice the empire's perspective of Christianity. What do they call it? Just this, this superstition. You know, it's just this nonsensical belief that they possess about their God. Last paragraph. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. 
For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of, the bo- of both sexes, and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which have been most, almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, and that, <clears throat> that the established religious rites, long neglected, are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now very few purchasers could be found. Hence it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. Notice he says, if we can get these Christians to knock it off, our temple worship to our gods is only going to be encouraged. We're going to keep our gods happy, And things will be better in the empire if we can just find them, find this contagion and cure it by getting them to recant and quit. So that's that's what his advice essentially is to Trajan. You need to come up with something about this. All right. Turn your paper over. Here's Trajan's response was very concise to plenty with all of that. Here's what he said. You observe proper procedure. My dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians, for it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is by worshiping our gods, even though he was under superstition or under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the age spirit of our age. All right, tell me his answer. What What is now going to be the policy in 112? All right, you can keep testing them. So notice it's if you have a known Christian, then put them through the trial. But don't take anonymous things. You know, don't, don't, we're not just going to randomly, oh, you, we think you're a Christian, and just start grabbing people left and right. So that's not going to work. We're not, we're not doing that. But he tells Pliny, what you've done is right. And I'm not going to give a fixed standard. So notice he's not putting forward this empire-wide, let's go find them all and get them. But if you do find one, if you just come across Christians, put them in the trial. And get them to repent, or otherwise they'd be punished. Well, and I think you see them true Absolutely. Because if you tick off the Roman gods, we're going to be in trouble. Well, we're not going to have our economy. We're not going to have all that. It's going to be a problem. It, it, absolutely. To me, that's what this paragraph in Revelation 13 sounds like. It has the authority given to it from the first beast. And it is goal is to make the world worship the beast, worship the gods, worship the image. And if you don't, you will either be killed and you will not be able uh, to, to buy and sell. I had this from from before, just as a reminder, this was in uh, Corinth <clears throat> at the forum, one of the forums there in where you would have the marketplace, the buying and selling. And what I wanted to show you is not particularly those pictures, but. 
This is just the, the west side of the city. And the thing I want you to focus on is in the middle is the English translation of eight buildings. Six of them are temples. <laughs> just to get a sense of this is Roman life. It's temples everywhere. Worship everywhere. You worship all of the different gods. And if you've been to any of those kinds of places, whether it be from Pompeii to Ephesus to Rome, any of those ancient cities, every building in there practically, it seems like, is an altar or a temple to somebody. And so that's what the Roman world ultimately looked like. Um, G.K. Beale wrote, wrote this. He says, under later persecutions, Emperor Diocletian and Decius, they're in the, in the 200s AD when they are reigning, certificates were issued to those loyal to the emperor and participating in the required ritual of imperial religion. And I quote him on this. He says, there, there were therefore few facets in society from which Christians could escape pressures to idolatry. Indeed, the state was inextricably linked to the religious, economic, and social facets of culture. It's just hard for us to visualize that because we're just so opposite that. Religion and economics, separation of church and state, religion and government don't intertwine. And in their world, they were inextricably linked. You couldn't pull them apart. To be a part of one was to be a part of all of it. And that's what this is picturing here in Revelation 13 is here is this, these entities that are going to go about doing this. So here's, here's the example to me is, so while Trajan is agreeing to all of this, notice Pliny is the one doing it. Why? Because Christians are basically enemies of the state. They are have this crazy superstition that goes against our gods and goes against our way of life and goes against our economy. And that can't be good, right? So we've got to do something about that. And this is the fervor of the first century. This is the air that the, the Christians are breathing in the Roman Empire of what life would, would have, have ultimately uh, looked like. So I think that's the picture. Questions about that? And then I've got 666 loaded for you. Uh, Charlotte and then Debbie. Uh, I thought it was interesting what they said about uh, the animal. Um, and I don't No, not like that. But they had to keep those those altars and things going. If you remember, the Apostle Paul talks about that, that meat sacrificed to idols. Well, there wasn't a separate meat market next door that didn't have the altar and the emperor worship and the pagan worship. They go, okay, don't go to that place because, you know, they're worshiping gods there. Go to this place. That was the only place. That was where you got your meat. That's where you got your food. And that's the difficulty the Christians are facing. And that's what Paul's having to write about of, okay, how do you navigate this? Because the food is being dedicated to the, the pagan gods. Can we go buy it? And can we eat it? And what if we have somebody with us? What does that look like? That's what 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 are all dealing with is how do you navigate that stuff? And notice it's not a simple yes or no. It's pretty complex about what that navigation ultimately looked like, Dennis. What's the communication letter mentioned twice? Uh, not only do you have to repent and do all this, but you have to 
That's right. That's the renouncing. That, is that he's not what you say he is. Debbie, you had something earlier? Well, yeah, I was just backing up to the first part of the, the uh, verse 11. Um, and that is that he Yeah. Sure. No, not not at all. And, and I think that's an important thing to think about. I mean, imagine if if the way to live life right now for you to go to work, to go to Publix, to go to the park to go to any kind of group gathering whatsoever, just, you know, whether it be social, economics, political, required, idolatrous worship. Is it going to be tempting to say, well, it's okay to do that because what else am I supposed to do? How else do I get my food? How else do we go to school? How else do I make money? How else do I... Because they were inextricably linked. There was not a separation between them. And, I mean, that's one of the things that we did last year, Faith in the Furnace, and it's about to restart here in just a couple of weeks. The idea that is being presented here, I think, is very powerful. That it's not just merely some top-down problem, but the problem resides among the masses, generating this up causing the difficulty that makes it go both directions. And I think you see that in our culture. It's not really a top-down top problem of standing against God particularly. It's a bottom-up problem. It is groups, influencers is the word Debbie used, that are saying, this is wrong, this should be canceled, this is incorrect, how dare you say this is truth. That's not particularly top down but the top is going to agree with it if that keeps them in power if that means that's the what the majority is well we want our job so we're going to go with that that's this that's what's happening here is it's going on around here and the emperor's like right yeah keep that up i'm you know he notice trajan doesn't say you need to stop all that you know don't don't do that he's like you know let's, he just basically says we shouldn't anonymously grab people but let's let's get rid of this superstition. Sure, Let, let's let's knock it out, okay, Debbie. Um, what I'm thinking of in particular is like nowadays, you know, there are preachers who people buy into what they're saying. Sure. We know that these are not right. spiritual, uh, scriptural truths, but they're telling people what they want to hear. Sure. And I'm thinking there's probably a lot yes. of that going. Yes, this is the way you're going to worship the true and living God is go ahead and do these things. That's what there's, there's a false religion component by, de, excuse me, by describing the second beast to look like a lamb but speak like a dragon is that this worship is acceptable. You go ahead and do this and it's going to be fine because, you know, we need to conform to the government and conform to culture and we shouldn't be going up against it. It's all the same kind of arguments. It's just not severe yet. <laughs> But it was severe then, because it's here. Here's plenty saying after three times we just execute them. You know, after three shots, 
You know, can you imagine that? I mean, please try to mentally get your mind around that idea. You know you're going to be executed after three, three tries. But that's not foreign to the scriptures. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, anybody? All right, I'm going to play the music one more time. I'm going to get you to bow down to my image. And if you don't, then I'm going to throw you in this uh, fiery furnace. It's the same thing. It's, as I've mentioned so many times, that's the norm for the people of God. We've been in the bubble. The norm is do not follow your God because that is anti-culture, counter-cultural. You are an enemy of, of, of people if you do that. And so you have a warning here that, so you're stating in the first century, things are going to get far worse. Uh, it's already the culture of the day. But can you imagine when you get to the 200s and Diocletian becomes the emperor and you're killed if you possess the sacred scriptures? So we've gone past confession and repentance. If you own the sacred scriptures, you were executed now. So it's not going to get better. And I think that's what chapter 13 is picturing. Because what's the dragon's goal? Wage war on the servants of God. That's what chapter 12 ended with, right? His purpose is to wage war on the people of God. How's he going to do it? Well, you've been given two facets. One, use a world power, use a government, use a political entity. And use all the people who belong to that political entity to create this persecution to cause misery and death to the people of God. I think that's what chapter 13 is picturing. And to me, history kind of confirms that's what the world looked like. And so that's how I look at that second beast is that pagan worship, that emperor worship that was all simultaneously going on, causing the citizens of the empire that they had to participate in that. And if they did not, they could not participate in, in normal social affairs, buying and selling, things like that. And they could even be executed if they were identified as a Christian. All right, questions? Kathy? Um, as far as 2 uh, Thessalonians 2, would that be like just to not fear these things happening? Yeah, and um, I'm not sure if I, it won't be today, but I, I want to go to 2 Thessalonians 2. And let me just touch on that a second. The descriptions in 2 Thessalonians 2 about the man of lawlessness are identical to this chapter. And I think they're talking about the same thing. They're looking at the exact same thing of the Apostle Paul saying the, the, the uh, day of the Lord could not come until these things happened. Because if you remember our early lessons, Daniel said this stuff had to happen, remember? We had to have the fourth terrifying beast that is making war on the people of God. That's Daniel 7. You can't have the day of the Lord in the end come until Daniel's prophecies are all fulfilled. And that's one of them, is that that fourth terrifying beast has to go out making war against the saints. That's what chapter 7 describes of Daniel. So it would make sense that Paul would be saying that. There are things, you have him say in the first century, there were things that had not come to pass yet. So we can't have the final judgment until those things happened. And of course, those things begin to happen in the first century. Charlotte? When Constantine became Christian in about 325, 325. Yeah. the Roman Empire still existed. It did. And Not to the same level, but it did. 
Because now you have an Eastern and Western Roman Empire and all of that. Things are shifting. Constantinople, things like that start. It, it's, it's starting to uh, destabilize at that point. The, the strength of it is in the first and second centuries. So, And remember, I, I, it showed you last week, Trajan and Hadrian, which puts you at just at the cusp of the second century, the beginning of it are when its economic power was its most and when its uh, geographic extent was at, the, at their most. All right, I think I can do 666 in four minutes. What do you think? It's no problem. It's really not hard, I don't think. Look at verse 18. What does it say that this is? All right, it is the number of the beast. All right, well, what have we said is the beast? Roman Empire and all this that's going on. Notice it is also described as it's the number of the beast because what? What's thousand, verse 18 end? It's what? It's the number of man or people or person on your translation. All right. Well, I look at it and go, well, what is it ultimately talking about then? Uh, I put up Revelation 15 verse 2 just to observe that it, I think you, ha- you have the same description there. Notice the number of its name. All right. The number of its name. The name of what? Well, the beast. Well, what's the beast we've been talking about? This Roman Empire with its political power and religious uh, influence and authority and all of that. I don't think there is anything more going on than to simply say have wisdom. Notice this requires wisdom. So after saying all that, he's saying, I want you to think about this. You need to understand what the Roman Empire is going to do and who these emperors are and what they're going to require of you and what the people around you are going to make you do. You need to have wisdom and why, you know, I think you understand about the idea of sevens and sixes. Why use sixes instead of sevens? Sevens always are, are a mark of, of completion and perfection. Seven churches of Asia. We already did that with, with back there in chapters two and three. Six then is just one coming up short. I would summarize this by just simply saying the emperors are trying to look like God. They're demanding deification. They are demanding worship. You have people saying you better worship them and worship the Roman gods. But they are false. They are sixes, not sevens. They are out. They are the number not of God. They are the number of humans. I don't think it's doing anything more than that there. I don't think this is supposed to be you take 666, backward engineer the Greek into the Hebrew, then turn it into numbers, and there you have Neron Caesar or Saddam Hussein. You will not believe the number of names that have been used out of 666. It is... It is Russia, it is Putin, it is Gorbachev. I mean, it has been everybody historically on the planet because everybody somehow is able to turn 666 into somebody's name. I don't think that's what it's trying to do. I don't think that's its intent. It is concluding this whole paragraph about what's going to happen in the Roman Empire about this persecuting, uh, unable to buy and sell problem. So he ends by saying, have wisdom. Don't participate in that. It's the number of humanity. It's the number of man. It's the number of people. It's not God. It's not divine. It acts like it. It pretends to be it. It looks like a lamb, but it talks like a dragon. So don't be fooled and don't participate in it. I think that's all that's trying to do there, Mike. 
sixes mean the magnitude of the incompleteness? Yeah. Or is it just one six? Yeah. It's a, it is completely incomplete. <laughs> it is not what you need to follow. It is absolutely not from God. Do not participate in this. I think that's all that's trying trying to do there. Um, so I, we we read we read uh, what Pliny the Younger said. There, there's a picture of Trajan if you want to know what he looked like. And um, I think it's interesting to note um, in the late first century. Ephesus had a 16-foot-high statue to Domitian. That's in Ephesus. Uh, Again, I'm just wanting you, if nothing else, to appreciate what the Roman world looked like. And understand that you were required to bid your allegiance to the emperor, to give your incense, Give the altar, what did Trajan say? Your wine and your, that was life. Can you imagine if we had to have 16 foot statues of every president every time we take one down, put a new one up in every city to be able to buy and sell, you have to go to that particular location? They did. That's what they had to deal with. We think we've got it rough. Knock it off. We got nothing. Nothing. You can believe what you want to believe and do what you want to do. They couldn't. They were getting killed for that. Sure. Emperors had to do that, right? And why not? Trajan was the one who had brought the the empire all the way into Britain at that point. He's the one that pushes it all the way into Britain. The emperor after him, Hadrian, says, we can't afford to keep pushing further. Let's build a wall up there and back up our troops. That, that Trajan is the guy that pushes things to its furthest extent. So he, he's got that power. All right. I think that's what chapter 13 is about is warning the Christians. Things are not going to get better. Things are going to get a lot worse. Things were not going to get better. That goes all the way back to chapter six. The saints under the altar. How long? And the answer was until the rest of your brothers and sisters in Christ are killed. It was going to get worse. It was not getting better anytime soon for them. And this must to be a book to try to help them in dealing with those things. All right, I'll pick up your questions that you might have next week of chapter 13. Otherwise, we'll push to chapter 14 uh, for next week. 15-minute break. Reconvene at 1030. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. <laughs>